This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. This week we talked to Julian Lloyd Webber, one of the world's greatest cellists, who recently celebrated his 70th birthday. Lloyd Webber's early years were spent living in a house that was filled with the music of not only his composer father William, but later his older brother Andrew as well. Julian himself took up the cello as a child, inspired by the great players such as Rostropovich. He later embarked on a glittering career on the world's great stages, followed in more recent years by his appointment as head of the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire. Though an injury has curtailed his solo career, Julian Lloyd Webber still appears on the stages today as a conductor and devotes much of his time to championing music education, plus, of course, supporting his beloved Leighton Orient football club. Julian talked to our deputy editor Jeremy Pound shortly before his 70th birthday in April, just as the UK was emerging out of lockdown. I'm here with Julian Lloyd Webber speaking over Zoom, just as the UK starts to come out of lockdown. Um, the weather is very nice at the moment and people are starting to come outside after three fairly heinous months. And Julian has his 70th birthday in two weeks from today. Um, I don't presume this is how you really wanted to spend your 70th birthday. Um, no, <laughs> but everyone's in the same boat. But it certainly wasn't. And I, I think we can't you know, even go out really to celebrate because now everywhere is completely booked up and has to be outdoors so it doesn't really work you know but so i will do some kind of quiet family thing have you found ways of keeping yourself occupied over the last three or four months yes i mean i really have uh, i i have left the rob conservatoire where i had a you know fantastic time over five years with wonderful students and a, a lovely place um but I'm still very involved with music education. I've been speaking out about one or two things. I was on this um, national um, music uh, model music 
curriculum panel um so that took quite a lot of time so generally actually been really busy i had a big conducting concert coming up um next month well april um in china which with a huge program of mozart marriage of figaro overture shostakovich first cello concerto which would have been fascinating for me to conduct and the Caesar frank symphony and this was with the shenzhen symphony orchestra who i know are a very good orchestra so um it's a shame it's been postponed a couple of times now and is still being postponed so things are not back to normal yet as as we all know hmm. now i want to go back over these 70 years um and actually ask you about your life in music um i've done a couple of these interviews where i've interviewed people who have come from um very musical backgrounds I actually wanted to where they haven't at all but of course your family is famously musical with you your father, William, a, a very fated composer, and likewise your brother, Andrew. What was it like growing up in such a, an astonishingly musically talented family? Well, it just seemed to be, um, it, was, it was normal to me. You know, I, I, when you're growing up as a, as a child, you know, my brother was three years older than me, um, and there was just always this music around. I, I remember my father, who was still just about composing um, every morning, at that time when I was, I remember him sort of buried away um, in this room that he had, which was fitted up with a a most extraordinary contraption, um, a pedal piano, um, which was fitted with pedals like the organ. So he could practice, um, you know, his organ at home on the piano. It was a very strange device. I've never seen one either before or since, but I'm sure they must exist somewhere. So that was going on. My mother specialised teaching young children the piano. So sometimes, you know, there'd be student, young children coming and learning from my mum. And then Andrew was always into theatre music and always composing his own tunes. And there were lots of music students coming in all the time. Occasionally my father would take a student at home. And, but there were, and then later on, um, the pianist John Lill actually came, who was a student at the, the Royal College of Music like myself, but quite a lot older. Um, but I met him at the junior department there. And he would eventually came to to live with us and um so for a long time he was there practicing all the time so um my knowledge of piano repertoire is really not too bad um (laughs) you know certainly all the Prokofiev sonatas the Beethoven sonatas he was working on these things all the time um and I was playing cello by that you know I'm sort of I've skipped a few years now I'm sort of thinking of when I was 13 14 15 16 and all these people started coming into the home and actually living with us. Uh, and the, Andrew's lyricist, Tim Rice, also came and lived with, with the home. It was, a, it was bohemian, and that word's been used before about, about how it was, but it really was. Uh, there was extraordinary um, numbers of people in and out all the time, lots of young people, um, my own friends, Andrew's friends, you know, John Dill's friends, in and out all the time. Um, and then there was the another two generations my father and mother and my grandmother also living at home actually in the next room to tim rice who you know had various girlfriends wandering around in various states of dress (laughs) or undress and uh, it was a most extraordinary combination and i I do look back on it with great affection because it was one of those places where you never knew you know what was going to happen next basically People say the Lloyd Webber family, you, you know, it, it's musical, obviously, but actually before my father, my grand, my father's father was, a, a, um, 
he used to was an amateur singer and he was he was a fanatical about the organ and that's how my father got into playing the organ they used to go he used to take his son around to look at churches with you know amazing organs around the place and and, and obviously particularly in london and uh, my father then became fanatical about it as well and and started playing and he was really a child prodigy organist uh playing big recitals when he was very young um but before that, there's no sort of record of music in the family. So how did you choose the cello yourself? My mother took me, well, first of all, of course, she tried to start me off on the piano as, as that's what she did. She taught children the piano, so she tried with me. I never got on with it. I I'm, Perhaps it was because it was my mother trying to teach me. But then I was taken to one of those Ernest Reed children's concerts they used to have at the Festival Hall, and I spotted the cello in the orchestra. I would have been about four then, and I thought, this looks interesting. It looks... Um, I, you can see how the notes are made. You can see how the sound is produced. Um, and I asked if I could play a cello. And then I was very disappointed because I was thinking that one of those instruments was going to come. And what arrived was a tenth size cello, which was a bit like a violin, basically, a big violin. And, and so I was a bit disgruntled by this. But but then I, I sat down with this little toy cello and actually really started enjoying it and, and playing it for fun, which I never had done with a piano. Um, and I went to study in a class, I remember, with this lovely old lady who was a specialist. I, I suppose my mother's equivalent on, on the cello, a lady called Alison Dalrymple. And she had this big cello class. Um, I can't remember where it was um, exactly, somewhere around Notting Hill or something. And I remember that one of the oldest, the older players... But she took them right through from, you know, three, four to, to 12, maybe even 16, um, was Jacqueline Dupre. Um, I mean, I didn't know that at the time, but people told me that after. Um, but there were a lot of very good young cellists there. And she was a sort of expert at, at teaching young children the cello. But I must say, I didn't really take it seriously. I just played for fun. I didn't, I never practiced properly. Um, and all that came about much later. One of your earliest favourite pieces of music, though, I understand, was Shostakovich's first cello concerto. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Um, a lot of things started to change, I suppose, um, probably when I was around 11. I got more and more into the cello. I got really into the repertoire of the instrument. So I, I sort of, I knew of these concertos that everyone played and, you know, were on the radio all the time and lots of recordings like Elgar, Saint-Saëns, Dvorak, the Schumann, you know, all the ones we know. Um, and I got fascinated about what else um, was written for the cello. So I started collecting LPs and things. Um, and I used to, I remember I often used to go to a wonderful old shop in the, in Wardour Street called the Gramophone Exchange. And they had not only new everything you all the new releases but they used to have an old loads of second-hand records and cheap too and um i would go through the cello section probably once a month and and i've still got all some extraordinary old recordings um that that i bought from that shop and other places as well but um the thing that really changed my mind about the cello which had just been a hobby something you know that was just another thing in my life um was really when I went, I was taken first of all by a teacher 
called Runa Martin, who was a South African lady, well, young girl, really, was still a student, I think, herself at the Royal College. And she started teaching me at the junior department. And she inspired me. So I would have been around 11 then. And she started taking me to here, way beyond the call of her duty, some great cellists in concert. Well, I, this was the first time for me. And I, I think the very first one that I heard and she took me to was Pierre Fournier, who, strangely, in a way, um, was became my teacher later, um, which I would never have imagined at, at that age, um, because I, I wasn't even thinking particularly of doing this for, for myself. Um, but I started hearing these great cellists, and it was just a revelation to me in concert, and, and I always saw the cello as a solo instrument. That's how I heard it. That's how I saw it. Um, and then I started going to these concerts on my own, and um, when I was 13, I heard Rostropovich for the first time um, in a concert where he played Dvorak Concerto and a first performance with Kachaturin conducting of Kachaturin's Concerto Rhapsody. And I was just blown away. I was just, I really was blown away. It's one, well, kind of annoying expression, but I was. And um, I started thinking, you know, I, I, I might, I want to try to do this for myself. Um, and then I realised, obviously, that I had a huge amount of work to do because I hadn't, um, you know, spent much time on technique, um, any time on technique. I wasn't interested in that. I, and, and I realised now that I had to. So at that around that time, I changed to another wonderful teacher called Douglas Cameron. I was still at school. I used to, um, I used to go on Saturday mornings to him over in Chiswick, um, and he was a wonderful teacher, was at the Royal Academy. Um, so I had private lessons with him um, while I was still at school till I was 16. Now, he also inspired me greatly. If I look back on my cello teachers, I would say my, my key teacher was Douglas Cameron. And uh, so I was just getting more and more into the cello uh, and really really pretty much stopped doing my schoolwork I have to say um and coming back home and practicing and uh that's that's what I I love to do um and Shostakovich of course um was a composer who had written at that point this major cello concerto which was I think it was 1959 it was premiered and I would then so it was I got to know it when I was 12 um Thirteen, and I saw him play it in concert. I had the recording. Um, I just thought it was a completely fresh piece of music and, and a, a new approach, in a way, to the cello as a solo instrument. <laughs> say looking back now 
it's brilliantly written for the cello. I mean, it sounds brilliant, but it, it, it actually sounds harder than it is. It's not easy, but it, it, it's one of those pieces that's so well written. The double stopping and the, um, and the, the, the passage, the, the fast passage work. It sounds incredibly difficult, but actually it lies very much under the hand. So it just was an approach to the cello where he, I have to say this, you know, in the first movement, it's almost rock and roll. I mean, he has got these rhythms going on, da da dum 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 and the cello, you know, against it, and, and this, this bass line, pizzicato double bass line, you know, and it was just so exciting. For a young um, player of that age, I thought, you know, I would love to be out there playing that piece. And so I started working on it very young, actually, and Cameron said to me, you know, I, I don't think you're ready for that. I, I, I think you should play the sonata. If you want to play Shostakovich, play the sonata instead. It's it's much more straightforward. So I, thought, no, I said, no, I'm going to play the concerto. If you don't mind, I'll come back with you the, the, with this next week. And I just sat and practiced and practiced and practiced that first movement so that he let me go on working at the rest of the concerto, and, and he did. And he said, okay, all right, you've, you've not done too badly. You you can go on with this so Excellent. that was it and I was just into the cello um I went to hear every cellist I could everywhere um and and I kept buying the cello recordings taping things off the radio and reel-to-reel tapes um whenever I saw there was a piece for cello I, I would solo cello I would tape it and some of them were off weird foreign radio stations because Radio Times in those days used to have this section of music from foreign radio stations. So I would be tuning into Hilversum with lots of cracks and crackles and and um, recording pieces like the Honiger Concerto, you know, things that on um, concertos that I'd literally never heard of. And I've still got all those old tapes, can't actually play them, um, but I, I, I've got them and I've kept them. And there's some extraordinary performances there by cellists that people wouldn't associate uh, with with those pieces of music perhaps um but i've kept them all you were mentioning a couple of the the great cellists there um including of course rostropovich now if my math is correct you would have been 17 when he famously played um Vorjat's cello concertos at the cello concerto at the proms um fairly soon after the russian tanks had rolled into the center of prague you're right um, um, Tell me a little, little bit about, about that. that. It was in 1968, and of course I'd been, you know, I was an absolute Rostropovich devotee and been to see every concert that he, he did in London, if if at all possible. And this particular night will forever live in the, in the memory of anyone who was there. Probably that concert should have been cancelled, although, and now, you know, everyone in the end was very glad that it wasn't, but it really just was amazing because it, the headline news uh, all over the world was that the Soviet Union had invaded Prague. Now, what perhaps I didn't realise at that time was how important a city Prague was in Rostropovich's life. He won his first cello competition there, I think in 1947. He met his wife Galina there in Prague. Um, it was a very, very special city for Rostropovich. So this terrible event had happened, and he was playing the Czech cello concerto, Dvorak concerto at the proms. And it was conducted by Evgeny Svetlanov, who's a conductor I love, and in fact, later on, I did actually get to play Dvorak concerto with Svetlanov. But the two of them didn't get on, 
there was an extra tension there. Um, they really didn't get on, although I've heard some of the best live Rostropovich performances are, strangely enough, conducted by Svetlanov. And I think there was something about that tension that somehow brought the best out of maybe both of them. Anyway, so this extraordinary thing happening, there were people with banners outside the hall um, uh, protesting. Uh, was, and I've forgotten to say, it was with the USSR State Symphony. I mean, it, it couldn't have been, you couldn't make it up, actually. And there were people, promers, shouting before the concerto began. I remember they started off with Ruslan and Ludmilla by Glinka. I have, and I can't find that performance anywhere, but it was the fastest performance I've ever heard, perhaps of anything ever. It was just crazy, and, and Svetlana whipping the orchestra up, and, and, and the tension in the hall was just amazing um, before Rostropovich came on. And then, of course, you would say, I mean, if you hear that performance now, which has been released um, and is quite easy to hear, I think it's on YouTube, I, th- I think it's around the place, um, he, it's, you would never say he was, uh, it was technically his best performance. He's quite overwrought. And, and as, as it gets nearer the end of the concerto, he skims over the passage work. It's like he almost, you know, can't bear to be there, actually, and wishes he wasn't there. There are moments when I feel that. But then when it comes to the end, which he always played so wonderfully anyway, it's absolutely heartbreaking. It's incredibly slow. Svetlana's following him like, you know, um, perhaps, I don't know. Uh, anyway, it's incredibly emotional. Um, it, it was an extraordinary experience to, to, to be there and see that concert. And then Rostropovich did a bar encore. And he had tears coming down his face. And it was one of those things, really, where music does speak louder than words. People, he could never say in an interview as a Soviet cellist what he felt, but he certainly said it through his music that night. Now, strange enough, the concert you have chosen, though, the highlight is a really memorable one, as well as that which you attended was a prom in 2007, a much more upbeat prom, um, and this was the Simon Bolivar Orchestra under Gustavo Dudamel. Well, um, I, I was invited to that concert, I, and I, I can't exactly remember why I was there, but it, in a sense it changed my life in a way, because it was the most astonishing performance, and they really were... They were the Seaman Bolivar Youth Orchestra at that point, um, and they really were very young players. I think as the orchestra toured the world, um, uh, many of those players seemed to stay on, and, and, it, and they dropped the word youth out of it. But at that point, um, they were all very young players from Venezuela with this incredible um, dy- dynamic ball of fire young conductor. And... Um, again, Shostakovich comes into this because the main work in the programme was Shostakovich's Tenth Symphony, which I, I always loved. And I just, um, everybody in that hall that night was completely, again, blown away by the performance of these, these, this young orchestra. Um, that's not actually, and I, I'd like to say this at this point, that's not to say that, you know, the National Youth Orchestra, for example, is is not as good. I, I think in many ways they are. But it was the fact that a lot of these children had come 
it was the thing that really appealed to me is I've always believed music's for everyone. And you saw these young children from Venezuela, and many of them were from very poor backgrounds. There's people who now start nitpicking, saying, actually, Dudamel was a middle-class Venezuelan. I mean, come off it. You know, there were people from extremely poor backgrounds, and I've been there, and and when Caracas was slightly more safe than it is now. Um, I played with that orchestra later, and um, it's a wonderful, really, thing that has happened for the children there. I hope it's still okay. I don't know. Um, But it was an incredible programme for these children, and, and they embraced that music with the most incredible enthusiasm and the fact that some of them i think that one of them went on to be principal bass in the berlin philharmonic i mean to to create that in venezuela which was a country that had no real meaningful tradition of classical music um it it, it, you know it was all very stale and now or certainly then, um, it completely came alive. And Dudamel was as well-known in Venezuela as as any president or any, you know, he was... I like to see that with classical music. I I like to see the the public getting behind it and and, and loving a player, loving and and identifying with someone as as really an absolutely essential part of their culture. So anyway, this prom was just joyous. It was a wonderful experience. And I I guess that is, you've hit the nail really why I would choose that, because it was joyous. It was celebrating classical music. And the concert of Rostropovich was, was for different reasons special, Um, but they weren't joyous reasons at all. So that's why I would perhaps just edge the Simon Bolivar concert. And the Simon Bolivar concert, of course, that led you to to start or set going get going with In Harmony as well. Yes, I remember that night that I was sitting in a box with the um, the the music editor of the or the arts editor of the Observer, Vanessa Thorpe, um, and I was saying to Vanessa, you know, we we if they can do that in Venezuela, we we should be doing this here. We should be, you know, really making sure that that all the that that all young children are learning instruments. And and she said, Well, would do do you want to do an interview about that? And I said, Yes. And so there was a big interview with was saying, Well, you know, we need we why aren't we doing this here, basically? Then I get a call from the schools minister in the Labour government, Andrew Adonis, and saying okay, come in and talk about it. And we did. And um, then the programme In Harmony was born. Um, And I chaired its steering committee and uh, lots of 
very helpful people, knowledgeable people about schools and education, sat on this committee. And we came up in the end uh, with lots of interview processes and all this with three programmes, one in Norwich, one in Liverpool and one in Lambeth. Um, And I watched that grow um, and and it it is now, uh, I think it's in 12 schools now, it's gone through probably four regime changes, shall we say that, and it's still there. And the reason it's still there is because it's produced results and it has changed children's lives, not only children's lives, the whole performance of those schools it's in. And, um, you know, school, I I don't particularly want to single out, but I know there's one school that was virtually in special measures is now outstanding. You know, that's the transformation that music can bring about in a school. Um, and I'm hoping that this new model music curriculum, which I was also on that panel, um, will do the same because it is recommending more or less more than recommending. There has to be an hour's music in every school starting very soon. And this is something which is new and, and I hope really will start to make a difference. One piece of music which I notice has been a, a constant throughout your whole career and has clearly meant a lot to you and you actually wrote a piece about it for bbc music magazine a couple of years ago is elgar's cello concerto why above all other works has that held a sort of life or career-long obsession for you it has just been i suppose in many ways the most important piece of music in my life um a very uh, many special occasions it was the elgar that I was playing. Um, so it's been a constant thread, really. Um, I, I, It wasn't the first cello concerto I learned. I think that was the Sassons. I came to it as a cellist in a way slightly late, probably when I was about 16. And, you know, in, it's not late, but it seemed late to me because it wasn't one of the earliest ones I learned. And in fact, I, the work that really got me into Elgar was the first symphony. I'd seen Barbara Ollie conduct this at the Festival Hall, and, and I then was you know, just fell in love with Elgar's music, really. Um, obviously, I knew pieces, some of the smaller pieces, like Serenade for Strings, um, before. But it was really the first symphony that that made me love Elgar, um, a work of so many contrasting moods, so many contrasting emotions, wonderful opening melody, um, wonderful ending, gorgeous themes in the, in the first movement particularly, um, and very, to me, connected to the countryside. And I started, I'll tell you, digress here, but I used to pick up the, my father's Mini. i just learned how to drive. And I would drive, um, often with uh, the, the Celia, who became my wife uh, about six, seven years later, um, we would drive out to basically Elgar country, or try to get as far as we could, um, because that was quite far from London, especially those days, um, and, and far for the car too, which was secondhand and, and you know, um, struggled a bit. But I would do that, and I fell in love with that part of the country as well. And I, I do feel with Elgar that it's actually it's not essential, but it's an advantage to to know the Malvern Hills and to know that area he loved so well. You had a sense of, of the line, the incredible long musical lines he had with, which the contours are hilly, you know, they're not flat. Um, and, and I think um, 
that's a sort of side observation. Um, but the piece has been very important to me. I made my festival hall debut with it, with it, and I think um, it's it. There's one concert in my career that I remember more vividly than any other, and it was the final changeover concert um, in Hong Kong from um, British to Chinese rule in Hong Kong, and this would have been in. Um, whenever it was, 1997, was it? I, I don't know. My history yes, it was 97. It was 97. Yeah, spring of 97, yes. I, it was with, so I was due to go out there and play this concert. I knew it was going to be something special um, because obviously an extraordinary, um, you know, end of an era. Um, so I was went out with the Academy of St. Martins and lovely Neville Mariner. And the first half was all English, the Academy and Mariner, myself, ending the first half with the Elgar. The second half was the uh, Chinese conductor Yu Long um, with the uh, Chinese orchestra and a brand new piece of Chinese music. So it really was that. The end of the Elgar was the end of that era. And all the politicians were there. I remember Chris Patton running around, all the Chinese, all of them were all there. And, um, and of course, with the situation now, um, perhaps you could see just how emotive that evening was and as it I, I knew it was going to be special but I didn't know it would feel like that so as the Elgar you know the closing bars of that Elgar which are incredibly emotional at any time in that hall on that night it uh, I never forget the sort of the, the incredible tension um, and a sense of sadness uh, in the air um, so just to generally, that piece has been, and of course the recording I made with, with Yehudi, who who I loved working with, and we played it a lot around the world. Um, they're, they're very special memories for me. still head out to the Malvern Hills occasionally and kind of get the Elgar vibe? Yes. I mean, basically, our house is in the Cotswolds. Um, it's not exactly Elgar country, but it's very near. And I think, I mean, I think you were, people were talking about the the uh, Malverns, um, quite rightly. Uh, but I think he also had a, a great soft spot for Hereford and that area and going right to the Welsh borders. I mean, you've got the Welsh tune in the in the introduction of Allegro. And, and I think he loved that. And he wrote, of course, some of his, his greatest works in, while he was living in Hereford, which I think he was there for about, was it, was it about 10 years? Which, like that, yeah. which in Elgar's yeah. term is one of the longest stays he probably ever had anywhere because he was always moving house. Um and, uh, yeah, I, I can quite understand why. I'm a, actually a closet Hereford United supporter. But don't, <laughs> don't, tell, don't tell my friends at Lake Norrent. 
<laughs> okay, I promise not to. I promise not to. Actually, I was only yesterday. I went up um, one of the hills just south of Cheltenham for a walk with some friends, and from there you can see the Malverns on the horizon. This kind of this very quite dramatic hillside, isn't it? It's quite a bare. It's not a. It's not a classic English countryside. The Malverns at all, is it? No, not at all. And uh, it is quite bare, and uh, the areas with very few trees, and it's 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 windswept. And I hear that in his music. Uh, listen to the, the second movement of the first symphony. Those 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 semiquavers. It's like it's it's uh, it's gusts of wind. It's 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 fresh air, and I feel that in the second movement of the cello concerto too. And the way he marks it with the the little hairpins. It's like it's 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 open air. It's outdoor music. And of course, one performer who's had a sort of I wouldn't say a stranglehold on the work, but who's just become very associated with the work is of course Jacqueline Dupre and you wrote a piece of music called A Song for Jackie much later didn't you? Yes I mean I got to know Jacqueline Dupre quite she was I have to say she was the cellist probably I heard most when I was growing up in London because you know she was the the young star um, and she was playing a lot and I heard her play a lot uh, in London but I didn't get to know her until she was quite ill um, well very ill with multiple sclerosis and I got to know her really quite well then. Um, and she was still full of joy, you know, still full of fun um, and cracking jokes all the time, you know, which um, is something that shows the strength of character that she had. So then I went to, I was invited to a preview of this film, Hillary and Jackie, which had been based on uh, a book that she'd written with her sibling Piers and they Hilary Dupre was is her sister and Piers Dupre is her brother and they wrote this book which I felt was unrecognizable from the person I knew and I I think um I I don't really want, want to say the reasons why they may well why they wrote this all I can say is that they wrote the book apparently alongside the screenplay for the film there were awful things that happened. I got to know... Firstly, the film was, I, I think, just basically dishonest. And, and you know, there's one place which I know as a cellist, and everyone would know, where they show her leaving her Stradivarius outside in the snow in Moscow when she was learning with Rostropovich because she was so depressed and all, you know. That never, ever, ever would happen. And they, they also, their instrument would have, died if that had happened and it didn't so come on and there was the incidences the incidents um you know with her um talking at a hospital in front of someone that could not possibly be verified because that person the person she was talking in front of had died so i just felt the film was fundamentally dishonest so um i've written very few pieces of music but i came back home that day after uh, after the the film in a in a sort of white rage and and wrote this little tune, um, which is you know no great claims about it, but I, I, it it um, it tried to sum up the way I felt about her. I want to move now onto your current listening obsession because I, although I should imagine you're kind of you're very wide ranging in your listening taste, not least because of your 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 recent post at, at the Birmingham Conservatoire. Um, but what is there any composer or any particular music which you find you're constantly coming back to at the moment? Yes, and it would be Mozart. And people might say, "Well, this is very strange. You know, he's never he's not 
um, played Mozart, but I couldn't because Mozart never wrote for cello. So it's been, um, apart from the very good parts in some of the, the string quartets and a wonderful string, string quintet with two violas, two violins and cello um, in G minor, which I think is one of these greatest works. Um, I was, I was, as soon as I got some chance to do some conducting, um, I asked to, to do Mozart, and with the Orchestra of the Swan, I did um, some uh, quite a few concerts, and I did uh, Mozart 40. That's the first one I wanted to do, because I just think it's a total masterpiece. Um, I uh, And then I did the Mozart 29, um, also in G minor. And I, I just uh, love Mozart. You know, I, I played a lot of his music when I was young. I played in the, the string quintet. I played in the in the, in the oboe quartet. I played the clarinet quintet. But uh, obviously, there's no solo cello music. Um, yes, unfortunate mistake in Mozart's life that. But um, yeah, I love his music, and I, I think you know, I, I was fascinated listening to performances of, say, for example, Mozart Forty. Um, and I'm so glad, you know, actually it was Neville Mariner was one of the ones who came along and swept away this over-romantic tradition where you're playing with sort of like 10 double basses in the Berlin Philharmonic. It's it's crazy. Um, and I, I think people, listen, they, you don't, there's two composers I think you don't mess with. You don't mess with the music and try and keep it as simple as possible. Mozart, Shostakovich. Play what they've written play the dynamics they've written, don't romanticise them. You know, that to me, um, then then it, what they have written down is extremely clear. And and I've always said that to students come and play Shostakovich concerto to me or Sonata. And, uh, you know, don't romanticise it. Don't put writs in where they're not written. You know, just play this music and it will work. And I feel the same with Mozart. Mm. And... Would you say, if you had to pick out, and this is the impossible question, if there was one symphony which you had to pick out above all others, would it be number 40, perhaps? Yes. Because? <laughs> genius. Uh, it's a work of, of, of absolute genius. Um, the way it ends, I find, is interesting because it, it it's not a sort of, in a way, big ending. Um, there's, there's so much range of emotion in, in that symphony. Uh, hurt, um, anger... I think the ending of the symphony is angry. Um, and that's why I hate to hear writs and things. He doesn't write that. He, he wants to go straight through to the end. Um, I, I think there's so much. Why I would pick that one out is because it, it is an absolute um, example of the best of the human spirit. It, it's a wonderful work um, with with teeming with ideas um, and and very original for that time. And there's that part in the, the the last one, which is actually atonal. I mean, at that time, when he wrote that, that must have been an extraordinary listening to, to an audience.
one subject I have to talk about because we are both big football fans, as you have mentioned earlier on. Now, and we've Jeremy, do you know that there's a book um, by uh, uh, called Shostakovich and Football? I have read it. It's brilliant. <laughs> See, there, there's far more links between I think musicians and and football than people people realise. I mean, a lot of I was just talking to my dear friend. Sheku Kane Mason, um, and his manager is really worried that uh, he he takes his football so seriously and actually you know keeps playing as a striker for the Royal Academy football team, um, and because I think you know and uh, he said to me, well actually I did break my wrist once and just before uh, the, the BBC competition, um, the time before he won it, um, so you know he but he's well good for him, he's down to earth and long may it last. Though sadly, he supports Arsenal, which you and I will both have to find some way of forgiving. I would rather but... overlook this. <laughs> no. I try not to let it spoil our, our friendship. It, it's also the same affliction that my son has got. I don't understand it. I try to bring him up the right way, but you know. Presumably, as a, as a proper football fan, one of the things you're looking forward to most coming out of lockdown is next season spending happy afternoons on windswept rainy terraces in, in Crawley and Harrogate and Barrow and places like that. No, I hope we'll be in League One by then. So places like Oxford, although you, right. might, even be, you might even be in the Championship. Who knows? Um, but there we go. This, this is the joy of, of football. Um, the, the actual thing is that, you know, within what, how many seasons it would be possible for Lake Norrent to be playing uh, Manchester, one of the Manchester teams in the champion, in, in League One. It is a possibility, isn't it? I mean, Premier League. So Absolutely. that's the joy of football. I think musicians need other outlets. Music is so all-consuming that I, I used to like to go to football because it was so completely different to everything else I was doing. Mm. And Elgar did too. And Shostakovich. Yeah. So we're in really, really good company. Absolutely. So that brings our conversation to a rather, a rather nice close. Thank you very much indeed for your time, Julian. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. Likewise. That was cellist Julian Lloyd Webber talking to our deputy editor Jeremy Pound. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Tune in next week when we'll be speaking to another fascinating figure from the musical world about their enduring musical loves. Do let us know what you think of the podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and various digital formats across the world. Or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read about all the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.